Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 4, we'll continue in our time of worship through the preaching of the Word. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, and choir for stewarding your gifts and preparing us for worship and the preaching of God's Word. A couple of weeks ago, the men met a man that was so instrumental in my coming to faith, Rich Wingo. And today, we have the man here that's most instrumental in me being called to the ministry, Wayne Atchison. Uh, Wayne Atchison was the sports information director at the other school <laughs> back in the 80s. And I came to know him through that. And he was the head of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes there. It's the longest running chapter of FCA at any university in the nation. And he had the largest FCA. Hundreds came every Wednesday night. And when I was converted to Christ, he was the one who, who believed in me and got me out of my comfort zone. And he sent me out to preach. I'm grateful none of those sermons were recorded. <laughs> but Mr. A played such an instrumental role. He believed in me, and he is a large part of the reason that I'm here this morning. Today, uh, Mr. A is uh, the historian for the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte. If you've ever been there, you may have... Um, been led on a tour by Mr. There's no one, this is not an exaggeration, there's no one living today that knows more about Billy Graham and his ministry than Wayne Atchison. I've been encouraging him to write a biography. I know there are many out there, but I'm not sure anyone has the knowledge that Mr. A has, personal knowledge. He was the first director of the uh, library, and now he is the chief historian He'd love to talk to you after the service. Mr. A, right there. In that. So great. I just want to say I'm so grateful for you. God is the one who's sovereign and calls us, but he uses human agency. And there's no one uh, that I can say that is more instrumental in my calling to the gospel ministry than you. I love you dearly. Well, we're going to be looking... Verses 16 to 26 this morning, but for context, it's been a couple of weeks, and some of you weren't here when we looked at the first part of this passage. If you'd look with me in verse 7 of chapter 4, John chapter 4, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There was great hostility, a great alienation, great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, 
and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning as those who've experienced this spring of water welling up to eternal life. And yet, Father, we recognize our faith is still weak. It does not comport with your glory and your greatness that we know in your Son and by your Spirit. So we pray, Lord, as we continue in this passage that the people of God's faith would be strengthened, our hope would be nourished. And, uh, Lord, we pray that our love would be nurtured in the gospel. And we ask this, praying as well for those who've never trusted in Jesus, that today they could experience this living water by grace through faith in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 30th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis was making its way home having delivered a cargo of enriched uranium that would play a major role in the end of World War II. Well, the Japanese torpedo ended that. Within 12 minutes, 300 had died on that ship, and some 900 found themselves in shark-infested waters with no fresh water to drink from. In fact, only 316 would survive that. They survived four days and five nights in the ocean without any protection from the sharks and without any fresh water. One who survived that was the chief medical officer, Captain Lewis Haynes, and he reported on that tragedy. Here's what he said. When the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear water, you were so thirsty you could not believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you take away their hope. You take away their water and food, they would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I can remember striking men who were drinking salt water to try to stop them. They would get dehydrated and then become very maniacal. There were also mass hallucinations. It was amazing how everyone would see the same thing. Now this is a, an appropriate picture for our natural lives in a fallen world. The difference is, is that our crisis was brought in and brought on by ourselves. Their crisis was brought on by a torpedo. Uh, this is a crisis that has separated us from the fountain 
of living waters, which has left us in a perpetual state of spiritual dehydration, spiritual thirsty. And here's what's worse. The waters of this world in which we are immersed in, they look to us as crystal clear water. They look to us as thirst-quenching water. Paul describes our condition in Romans 1, 25, when he says, they, who is they? We. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They saw the creature as the soul-quenching water rather than the creator. That is the human condition. And the only hope, the only hope we have is to be restored to the fountain of living water as Jeremiah 2 describes the triune God. It's our only hope. And thankfully, this fountain of living water is graciously inclined to overflow for the benefit for the spiritually thirsty. He has graciously inclined to overflow for us. And what is the supreme evidence of that? It's the coming of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And at the very beginning of his ministry, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, he is, springing, he is bringing that spring of water to bear on the spiritually thirsty. Now, we saw last time, and we've read earlier, that he has made his way to Samaria. The text tells us he must make his way into Samaria. And he has engaged a spiritually thirsty Samaritan woman. And we saw in verse 10, Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God. And we saw that the gospel begins with the recognition that salvation is all of grace. It's a gift. It's nothing that we earn. Our works can only condemn us. It is something received. It's not something merited. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So we have to know that salvation is by grace and we have to know the Son of God in order to be saved. And then he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And clearly at this point, this woman does not understand what Jesus is saying. Just like Nicodemus didn't understand him when he says that you must be born again. She believes that this water that he's referring to, no matter how remarkable it is, is still physical in character. She believes that it can prevent physical thirst. You see, her error is not in desiring physical water. We need water. But it's in being consumed with the physical. That is the problem in our sin condition. Being consumed with the physical. Believing that the only thing that really matters in life is the things that we can see and touch and taste and smell. 
Well, Jesus says to him or her in verse 15, or, or the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, Jesus knows here that he, she doesn't understand the offer that he's making to her. Her main problem and our main problem is she thinks materially. She thinks physically. She doesn't think spiritually. And so, to make sense of it, here's what he's going to do. Jesus is going to tell her what she has done. Jesus is going to tell her what she has done. Look with me in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, the word husband here is kind of tricky. The word husband can mean, in Greek, either husband or man. Jesus is using a wordplay. He did that often. Now, if Jesus means husband, that meant that she had five husbands. And we don't know what happened to those husbands. We don't know if it was divorce or she'd been widowed. But it appears he's going after some kind of sin in those past relationships. But if, she, if he means husband... What he's saying to her is, you've had five, and, and now the one you're living with is not your husband. Or maybe he just means you've had five men that you have been in an immoral relationship with, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And maybe it's a wordplay here. By the way, Jesus is indicting those who claim to be believers who live together, who have not made a covenant commitment of marriage with each other. He's indicting her sexual immorality in this passage. So whatever he is saying here, one thing is clear. Her past was immoral. Her present is immoral. She has long drunk of salt water. Now, keep in mind, and this is important when we engage unbelievers... Jesus' intention here is not to browbeat. But as Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, wrote, before a man or woman can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. You see the point there. Before she sees her need for the living water, she needs to recognize her sin. She needs to recognize the bad news before she can embrace the good news. Thomas Watson says elsewhere, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. Lest sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet, in other words. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's exposing her sin because he recognizes he's the remedy. But not to be missed here is that our proper response to this passage is not to condemn this woman. That's not our role. In fact, we saw last time that John is intentionally juxtaposing Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus 
was drinking of the salt water of self-righteousness. There was no one more moral than Nicodemus. This woman was sexually immoral. We saw that these are two poles, two extremes, and all of us find ourselves within those two extremes. But what Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman both needed was Jesus. They had the same need, and that need was Jesus. And so... We're not to condemn this woman. We're to recognize ourselves in her in some way. But primarily, the the point that John is giving us here is he wants us to behold the Son of God. He wants us to be in awe of this Savior. Indeed, the striking thing here about this passage is Jesus' knowledge of her sin. Now, Jesus is fully human. He was fully human then, and he's fully human now. But he's also fully God. Two natures, fully God, fully man, in one person. And we're seeing his divine nature come to bear here. He knows everything about her. This is a personal illustration of what we saw back in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, when it says that Jesus knew all people, he himself knew what was in man. Jesus' knowledge of this woman's past and her present drives home a crucial point for everyone sitting here this morning. God has full knowledge of all of our sin. Hebrews 4, verse 13, everything is open and laid bare before him to whom we must give an account. I mean, think about when Cain killed Abel. He thought he did it in secret. God came to him and said, where is Abel? God knew. God held Cain available or accountable. Or how about when Sarah laughed in the privacy of her tent? that she would bear a child at an old age. God knew that she laughed in unbelief. How about when Achan hid the wedge of gold that he had received as plunder from Jericho? God held him accountable because God knew. Or how about when David believed after he had committed adultery uh, with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah the Hittite, That he had all his ducks in a row and no one would find out. 2 Samuel 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knew. Indeed, Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now this is so very important to know. It's so very important. To believe that secret sin that you might be entertaining right now, it doesn't exist. There's no secret sin. God knows. And even though it may be hidden from every other person in your life right now, hear Jesus' words from Luke chapter 8. For nothing is hidden That will not be made manifest. 
nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And so secret sins, nonsense. But knowing this, believing this, is a grace. It's a grace that rescues us from the foolishness of thinking that no human might know about your sin, but that there won't be consequences. There will be. Think about this. Let's be very conservative here. Let's say you only commit one hidden sin per day. Now, let me just say this. We all commit numerous hidden sins every day. Now, there's a distinction between intentional sins where you premeditate sin and, and presume upon the grace of God. If, you, if, that, if your life is patterned in that way, you're not a believer. But all of us have moments where we think wrong thoughts. Maybe we have a, a, a sinful attitude towards someone. Or maybe we have a slanderous thought. Maybe we covet or we're jealous or lustful. Whatever it may be, maybe our motivations are off. Maybe we do something, you know, that's noble outwardly, but inwardly we're self-glorying. All of us commit hidden sins every day. At least we think they're hidden. But let's just be real conservative. Imagine if you only committed one hidden sin per day, and you lived 80 years. Well, at the end of the year, you've committed 365 hidden sins. At the end of your life, when you stand before God the judge, you will have committed 29,200 hidden sins. And that is clearly a conservative figure. 29,200 transgressions of the law how would a good human judge respond to 29,200 violations of civic law how would he how would she maximum penalty right and here I'm just presenting to you a superficial understanding of sin so highly superficial William Plummer, who was a pastor in the 19th century, says, no matter how deep your sense of moral bankruptcy and failure, you have not yet seen the depth of your sin. It is always worse than you think. The truth is, no man ever thought himself a greater sinner before God than he really was. The problem is, many people today don't think themselves as sinners worthy of judgment. In fact, a, Barna, a recent Barna poll says that among North Americans, and not just North Americans, professing Christians, over 70% deny original sin. They deny the doctrine of original sin. And that's why from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he came to expose and address our sins. And we by nature don't like that. We don't like it at all. But remember, there is no good news without the bad news. There's no making sense of the good news without the bad news. In fact, we see that this woman doesn't like it. She's very uncomfortable at this point, And she tries to change 
the subject. Look with me in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Completely changing the subject. And you'll often get that in evangelism. Often. But Jesus is too wise to get trapped by this woman. And this is where we come to the second part of this passage. Jesus has told this woman what she had done. And now he tells her what he will do. You see, he's, he's drawing her in. We're seeing Jesus save this woman in living color. He's wooing her. And he began by exposing her sin. That's what has to happen. You have to go to Mount Sinai before you can go to Mount Calvary. So he's already told her what he, she has done. And now he's going to tell her what he will do. Look with me in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, there's little to be gained by debate over the claims of Jerusalem, over the, gain, uh, the, the claims of Gerizim. Since both sites are about to be bypassed by something greater. Now, the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is that word, our. Every time it is used in the Gospel of John, and we'll see it several times, it's referring to the hour of his crucifixion. The hour in which he would die on the cross to satisfy God's justice, God's wrath for sinners. Of course, you can't separate the, the crucifixion from the resurrection. The crucifixion does us no good without the resurrection. So this is referring to Jesus' crucifixion and his exaltation. Indeed, an exaltation which would include an ascension to the right hand of the Father where he would then would send the Holy Spirit to dwell, believe, indwell believers, but also to create a community of people known as God's temple, his church. In other words, it is the crucified and resurrected Jesus who would serve as the fulfillment of the temple that was in Jerusalem. The temple was where God revealed himself to, to sinners. The temple was where God reconciled himself to sinners by atonement. And now this was being fulfilled and would be fulfilled in the person of this Savior. And that's why right now, in the city of Auburn, Alabama, or as Peter has already made clear, even in Dubai and the nations, that's why we send missionaries. But right now here, on the corner of Glen and University, you can worship the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can today. Because what the Lord Jesus Christ was coming to do. But outside the Son, you have no advantage over this Samaritan woman. Indeed, look with me in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, this isn't ethnic vainglory. This isn't ethnic pride on Jesus' part. But the reality is truth is truth. And God's revelation of himself and his saving plan, indeed, the Messiah himself would come through the Jewish people. And again, this is important for us to remember that what we deem as our source of authority matters. Oftentimes when I'm evangelizing someone, even in the city of Auburn, I learn that their source of authority is themselves. Well, that's not going to do you any good because your sensibilities and your sense of reason is fallen and broken. It is marred by sin. Our source of authority matters. And God, from the very beginning, designed his plan of salvation to be revealed in the Jewish scriptures. Jesus is correcting this woman. And this Messiah would come through the Jewish people. Indeed, the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures announced was here in the flesh engaging this woman. This was grace coming to bear on this sin-stained woman. The same grace coming to bear when you hear the word of Christ preached. That said, no matter how much grace Jesus shows here, it's never at the expense of truth. Look with me in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the Father is seeking. You know, in the Scriptures, it's never sinners who are seeking. Romans 3 says there's none who seeks after God. The one who is seeking in the Scriptures is the Father and then the Son. It says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19, verse 10. He does that here in Samaria. He's also doing that in Auburn. That should be encouraging to us all as evangelists. When you meet someone who needs Jesus, you need to be mindful that your God is a seeking God. He has already preceded you there. Sometimes we don't evangelize because well, there's no way this person can be saved. I, I'm not equipped to do this. It doesn't matter about your equipping. It matters that the Father is seeking a people to worship. And maybe you're here this morning. And maybe you're here because someone twisted your arm to be here. The night I was converted to Christ, that's exactly what it was for me. I came to a service to get the starting offensive tackle off my back. And in spite of that, I was converted. Why? Because the Father is seeking. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you didn't plan to meet with God this morning. 
But you need to be aware he is seeking a people to worship him in spirit and in truth. But as we worship him, we must do it on his terms. In fact, if you're keeping track, this is the fourth must in the book of John. We saw in John 3 that you must be born again. We saw in John 3.14 that the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be lifted up on the cross. We saw John the Baptist say in John 3.30 that I must decrease, he must increase. And here we see we, if we're going to worship God, because he is spirit, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I want you to note here, first... I believe the translators rightly translated this by not capitalizing the word spirit. If they had capitalized that, that would have meant the Holy Spirit. But they are taking this to mean the human spirit. Because there's no definite article before spirit. Now that might be a bit confusing when I say that to you. Because God's people have always worshipped in spirit and truth. Read the book of Psalms. There's something new that's being promised here. So what is it? Well, even though I think Jesus is referring to the human spirit, later on, three times in the Gospel of John, we will read that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. In fact, two times in 1 John, we will read that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So here's what I think Jesus means here. Jesus, upon his cross and resurrection, because again, he refers to that hour, he will send his spirit as our helper. We'll read that later in the Gospel of John. And this, the, this, the Holy Spirit will indwell every believer in a new way. And the Holy Spirit, in indwelling us in this new way, will illuminate to us the truth that is now fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling this woman. He is calling every person here to see that true worship stems from the depths of our souls, from the depths of our spirit, but is now empowered by the Spirit beginning with our regeneration, beginning with our new birth. But it's also informed by the Spirit through the Word of God. So it's empowered and it's informed. Empowered by the Spirit, informed by the Spirit through the Word of God that is supremely revealed in the Son of God. That's what it means to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But today, problematically, truth has become a subjective idea. Phil Davis and I met a, a young man just a couple of weeks ago. And he told us dogmatically, there is no objective truth. And we, he intended us to understand what he said as an objective truth claim. Right? There is no objective truth. That's how absurd that worldview is. But that's where we are. And that's why many today, when they 
worship, they're no different than this woman. They worship what they do not know. They begin with their inward spirits, as Jesus says here, but that's where it ends. That's where it ends. It's the fallout of what Robert Bella calls expressive individualism. You need to know that term. Expressive individualism. With this worldview, and it is the prevalent worldview in our West today, authenticity, in our case, authentic worship in this particular passage, is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inner feelings alone, no matter what the Scripture says. And that's, that's seen in so many different ways, right? We see it with the LGBTQ plus movement. Authenticity is what I'm about. So whatever I feel needs to be expressed outwardly. The problem with that is that we're not seeing our feelings as the fallout of sin and depravity that need to be redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And many churches have accommodated this worldview. And so... Instead of giving the people what they need, they give them what they want. I was at a church in Louisville, didn't go to the church. There was a mega church in Louisville that every year, for months on end, they have these movie themes. They play movies. And then they have a little talk about those movies, showing how they are consistent with something that you might read in the scriptures. I think that's accommodating to the culture. Jesus says the Father wants people to worship him according to what he wants, not what we want. And what he wants is actually what we need. R.C. Sproul says, in fact, that the one worship service in Scripture that was completely designed to minister to felt needs was the worship of the golden calf in Exodus 32. And God brought judgment at the foot of that mountain. At any rate, Jesus' words here has prompted something very important to this woman. Now look with me in verse 25. We've got to rush. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, I found this quite remarkable for a long time because the Samaritans only had the first five books of the, of the Bible. Genesis to Deuteronomy, that was their scripture. And yet, even in those five books, the Samaritan woman recognized the Messiah was coming. Isn't that remarkable? But she clearly had a an incomplete understanding of who he was. Deuteronomy does prophesy about this prophet who will come, who is greater than Moses. She got that right. But he would be so much more. He would be the priest typified by the high priest in Exodus 28. He would be the king that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 17. Indeed, he would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. He would be 
the answer to Isaac's question on the altar, Father, where's the lamb? He would be the lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. He was that prophet, but he was so much more. But for now, Jesus meets her where she is without correcting her theology. But notice what he does at the very here, end here in verse 26. He's told her what she did. He's revealed to her what he would do. And now, in verse 26, he tells her who he is. This is how you evangelize an unbeliever. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, the English misses this. I hate to say that. It sounds so arrogant to say that. But the reality is the English misses this. Literally, he says, I am he. Ego a me. I am he. This is the first of seven times that Jesus will respond to people by saying, I am. One example of that is John 8, 58, when he tells the skeptics and the scoffers before Abraham was, I am. Same exact wording that you see right here. And there are seven times that John connects the I am statement with an am. So for instance, in John chapter 6, Jesus says to the disciples, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door for the sheep. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Indeed, he is. Jesus is revealing to this woman, I am the Messiah. I am the prophet, but I am so much more. I am the great I am that Moses met at the burning bush. When Moses asked his name, what is your name? He says, I am that I am. The voice that Moses heard from the burning bush this woman was hearing from the mouth of Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? That's what we see here in verse 26. Here's the question, though, as we close. And it really is the most important question in the Bible. How can the holy fountain of living water be graciously inclined to overflow for the benefit of of sin-stained, spiritually thirsty people like this woman and like us without compromising who he is as holy and righteous, without compromising truth. And here's the answer, and I'm going to give it from the Jewish scriptures, the scriptures he was using with this woman. Later, God would tell Moses... In Exodus 25, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. Now, what was the mercy seat? It's the place where the, the blood of the sacrificial animal was sprinkled. 
to atone for sin. He said, you, you shall place the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And notice, there I will meet with you. Do you get that? Under the old covenant, God would only meet with his people there at the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrificial animal was shed for atonement. That Greek word, mercy seat, is the same word that you find four times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus propitiating the wrath of God for sinners. Indeed, in Romans 3.25, it says, Paul says, God put forth, God set forth Jesus as our mercy seat, as our propitiation. What the text is telling us is that God now, in Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit applying His work, is where believers will now meet with God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's here, in this place, God in Christ, by the Spirit, where we have the fountain of living water, whereby we never thirst again. And that is the hope for every believer here this morning. And John's goal in this passage for you is to strengthen your faith in him, in the Christ. But as Adam and the musicians come, we recognize not everyone has drank from that fountain. You're not born drinking from that fountain. You're born again drinking from that fountain. So we're going to have pastors here at the end of the rows. Maybe you would like to quench your spiritual thirst this morning by trusting in the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you would like to pray with us. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.